Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Audible. In the centuries ahead, humans will explore and visit every corner of the Earth and solar system. It's tempting to hope that technology will somehow protect us from serious accidents, but if history is any guide, the technology that allows this exploration facilitates bigger accidents and in more dangerous and remote places. Every year our first responders to emergencies are called upon to perform countless thousands of rescues in life and death circumstances, and with a very high rate of success compared to prior years. This indicates a trend of both better safety and better recovery efforts, which we can confidently attribute to better technology and better training all around. More knowledge allows us to better utilize what we have, as well as enabling us to develop new and better equipment and is the penultimate tool of both your survival while you wait for rescue as well as search and rescue efforts. The ultimate tool of course is courage. In dangerous situations, the will to survive is the most important part of making it through a crisis, and on the opposite end, the will of rescuers to jump onto a sinking ship or into a burning building represents extraordinary bravery and puts the lie to the cynical notion that humanity is cowardly or selfish. Every year, countless first responders put their lives and health on the line to rescue folks. That's something to keep in mind for later this month, as the US Senate recently passed a resolution naming October 28th First Responders Day. I doubt I'm alone in feeling this is well merited and long overdue, and I wanted to dedicate this episode to those first responders and every good Samaritan who has stopped to help when they could have just walked or driven by. I often get asked about how I always manage to be so upbeat and optimistic about the future, and folks like that are a big portion of it. Through willpower, courage, and curiosity, we can overcome just about any situation. Of course it is also our curiosity which so often gets us into trouble, and which will doubtless put us in even more perilous places and give us even more dangerous activities we'll need to be rescued from as we venture into ever more inhospitable parts of our world and beyond. But we are who we are, and our habit of sticking our necks out has benefited humanity as a whole, if often not the folks who did it. You wouldn't need a smart drone that can dive deep into the oceans and warm its way into fissures to bring a hapless diver and emergency air tank nor would you need one to deliver thermal protection and food and water to a mountain climber stranded on an icy mountain peak unless enough people found themselves in these dangerous life and death situations. I wanted to start with the topic of safety gear first, those garments and gadgets that give someone in a dangerous situation better odds of survival, or even removes the need to be rescued. As we noted a couple weeks back in our spacesuits episode, Improvements to those in terms of increased comfort and versatility might become as commonplace as firefighting gear, or even become a staple of day-to-day clothing and accessories. Knowing what and where something has happened is critical to a fast response, and I'd not be surprised if in the next decade or two it becomes customary to wear health monitors and personal GPS tags whenever doing anything dangerous or in a remote area, or even at all times. 
If we can open up a log, hopefully secured and encrypted to ensure privacy of course, to see where someone has been, we'll be in a much better position to organize a rescue party even if monitoring equipment has been broken or removed. Time is often critical to search and rescue, we want to do everything we can to minimize how long it takes to find a person in danger and maximize how long they can hoard out or even enable them to find their way to safety on their own. Just as we have smartphones replacing cell phones, we might have the ubiquitous first aid kit itself being replaced by something smarter too, but all equipment, smart or not, is useless if you don't know what to do with it. Survival and first aid kits need instructions, and the less familiar with their use someone is, and the more stressed out and panicked they are, the more detailed and clear those instructions need to be. We would benefit from training with smart first aid kits, which is really all about repetition, so we'll be able to remember how to use the new tech properly even when panicked and distracted. Now the ideal scenario is a phone that can be stuck into crisis mode and brings up a doctor or survival expert who can see what's going on and tell you what to do till help arrives, but in the absence of that, you need something that can respond to voice commands and has the relevant data on hand especially in remote locations where coverage might be spotty. Improvements in voice recognition and command, in image analysis, and in general improvements in processing and memory might mean everybody would be carrying around not only a library of medical data in their pocket, but a useful capacity for diagnosis and treatment. And indeed we do have some decent forerunners. The Red Cross for instance makes a first aid app, and if you haven't got that or something similar on your phone, you'd be wise to scheduling grabbing one of those and taking at least a few minutes to familiarize yourself with it. Doubtless those mobile apps will improve with time, but I think it's very likely that normal first aid kits and survival kits will start including more electronics and machinery in them in years to come. With better robotics and AI, we might have first aid kits that could tell if someone was injured and go into action to treat them properly. So too, there are limits as to how fast humans can be moved to a place to rescue someone and they are far slower than what a local machine might achieve. As an example, we could hypothetically get rapid response teams anywhere on the planet by dropping them right from orbit, but re-entry is a process of around 20 minutes even once you're over the right spot to start your descent. Even dropping from a stationary orbital ring isn't much faster. However, we wouldn't want our drop pods carrying emergency teams to simply fall, that is slow. No, we would do better to accelerate them and then decelerate them as fast as we could, same for any aircraft or ground vehicle headed to the destination. If you're curious, a plunge at 5 G's about what most folks can handle without passing out, followed by a hard braking using fuel or a very good parachute at the same acceleration would let you cover the distance from the International Space Station to ground, 250 miles or 400 kilometers, in just 3 minutes. We talk a lot on the channel about things like space planes, mass drivers, launch loops, and orbital rings as ways to get folks and cargo into space cheaply. But that same technology used groundside could potentially let a single station in any region, be it on the ground or in orbit, send a team to an emergency at rapid speed. Incidentally, with constant acceleration, your travel time rises with the square root of distance, so quadruple the distance, double the time to get there, 
a hundred times the distance, ten times longer to get there. 400 kilometers in three minutes, 1600 kilometers or a thousand miles in just six minutes. Of course our atmosphere gets in the way of things like that, as would water or rock for folks underwater or in a cavern or mineshaft, but explorers or colonists on some airless planet can realistically expect aid pretty darn quick from any base on that planet or ship in orbit. However, that aid might not necessarily be from people there in the flesh. A major principle of first aid is not to turn one victim into two, so if you can avoid putting the rescuer in dire risk that's always a good thing, and doubly so if you can get a robot there faster anyway. It might make more sense to fire a pod out of a railgun that can handle way higher accelerations. If you can pack a robot and supplies into a pod that can handle 500 G's, not 5, you can keep that cannon loaded all the time and fire it in mere seconds, and potentially fire it at speeds well in excess of orbital velocities. On arrival it unpacks and an export runs the robots by telepresence, though not by on-site AI. I put that caveat on there because if your artificial intelligence is that good that you can make robot doctors then you don't need to be firing anything to a rescue site. If you've got robot doctors you've got robot factory workers who can build robot doctors, and that means they might be so dirt cheap that any person is likely to have their own posse of drones and gear hanging around them. Same applies for any technology that will let us simply download skills right into someone's head so they could act as a surgeon or survival export for someone nearby or themselves. If you've got that technology, odds are everyone has already downloaded it as part of their normal childhood. Whoever coined the phrase search and rescue clearly wants us to understand how much of the rescuer's time and effort go into just trying, and sometimes failing, to find the people they intend to rescue. If the rescuees aren't wearing trackers, it sure would be nice if the rescuers had one of those life sign detectors that always seem to be on spaceships in science fiction, but the writers tend to be rather vague about how those work. Such a device doesn't have to only detect humans, especially on some barren moon or planet where you don't have to worry that you're getting a false positive on a cow or something. But what do we emit that would identify us as human, or at least as something alive, and can be detected from a distance. It might vary a lot on circumstances. We all give off infrared energy, generally about 100 watts of it at a wavelength of about 10 microns. Lots of things can spread that frequency out, everything from clothing or a thermal blanket to simple foliage being in the way or the atmosphere blowing or distorting it. But in many cases you could find someone by their infrared heat if you've got the resolution and processing power for it. If your search zone is a square 10 kilometers wide, taking a photo where each pixel is just a meter wide is a hundred million pixels you need to analyze for a possible infrared heat signature, flag all your hits and then check each out in more detail. This method works great in space when dealing with a moon or asteroid or airless world, alternatively you couldn't use something that worked on sound in such environments, but that might work very well on Earth. But there's a lot of ambient noise, and trying to pick up a heartbeat from that is a very dubious proposition. You've probably heard about new search and rescue drones that can pick out a heartbeat from a person even if they are buried under meters of rubble, but this is actually done with microwaves, and is a good example of space technology finding a use back here at home. 
NASA and DHS worked to put the concept together and it is very similar to ground-penetrating radar. There's a pretty distinctive motion and pattern to a beating heart or breathing whereas rubble does not move, and the radar can go through the stone fairly well and give you reflections from which you can build a 3D image. A second later, if that image has altered, that's motion, and again fairly specific motion for breathing and heartbeats. This is light speed so if you ramp up the power and receivers, you could potentially be doing this detecting from orbit. And since it is using low-powered microwaves, it's possible it's the sort of thing we could patch cell phones to do, not too far down the road, so that a ton of volunteers in a remote area or in a city that has had a building collapsed could potentially help rapidly scan that zone. I also would not rule out major improvements in microphones on smartphones, allowing everybody to network in to pick out noises. With enough processing power and enough microphones, you can potentially pick out all sorts of stuff, same if you got access to those phone cameras, and very good image processing. We might call this notion crowdsourced search and rescue, but there's a long precedent already of crowdsourcing our search, rescue, and relief efforts. However, this might be something we could set up to be near instantly activated and automated, which would be kinda handy. Kinda creepy too, but the bad news about technology like this is that it's kind of inevitable you'd be able to generate ridiculously accurate and invasive data on folks. Awesome for search and rescue and detecting crimes, but definitely raises the scary specter of Big Brother watching everything you do. And I hate to say there's no way around that capacity existing, you deal with that either by controlling how such data is collected, stored, sorted, and accessed, or by counter-technology like having microwave reflective coating in your clothes or walls. That is obviously a double-edged sword if you find yourself buried under those walls, or kidnapped and locked in a shielded dungeon. As always with technology, it solves a lot of problems, but often gives us some new ones too. That same sort of awesome detection and data sorting capacity, while great for SNR, also helps on the prevention end and the best emergency is the one that never happens. You're a lot less likely to be buried in an avalanche while skiing or mountain climbing if some radar system is scanning the slopes and compiling and processing that to detect one ready for collapse and knows exactly where to whack it with a drone or sound blast to cause a fairly controlled and minor avalanche instead so it's safe for people to walk on. Same, if someone falls down a well or shaft, we can excavate a lot faster if the digging tool is wired into a ground radar and computer that's constantly picking out the next safe scoop. On the rescue end, while St. Bernard's are cute, Some bullet drones that can slam through snow and ice to right next to you and blow a bunch of airbags open to cocoon you is a lot better, and that potentially works well down in shafts. As is a tiny drone that can warm its way through rubble pulling a small air hose or compressed oxygen tanks to a victim before they suffocate, or get them food and water and a microphone and speaker so they can talk and hear and not go insane with panic while we get them out. A drone carrying a skinny but ultra-strong tether of Kevlar or graphene might be great for looping around someone in a flood or sinking under sea or drifting away in space, so we can grapple them and winch them in. Or even in the air. Right now, if a plane starts going down in a crash, we can't do anything from outside but offer advice. If you could get tethers or nets latched onto one very quickly, you might be able to safely bring it down. 
speed being everything, there are occasions where some bullet or missile might be just what we need for a rescue. If a plane is dropping, it's still usually going subsonic and has some kilometers to cover before the crash. The same technology that might protect us from missiles, point defense systems, might also be employed to rapidly and automatically fire pods full of parachutes or airbags or solid rocket boosters at a plane within seconds of the pilot or onboard computers slapping the panic button or air traffic control detecting a terminal trajectory. That might work on cars on a freeway too, as an alternative if people don't warm up to self-driving cars. You can't automate the vehicles but you can automate the highway so that the guardrails and asphalt and ditches or have cannons along the median machine gun a car with compressed gas airbag bullets and presumably do the same on buildings or bridges for if folks fell or jumped off. You'd want really precise automation on that though to avoid blowing kilometers worth of traffic into cocoons if someone just swerved off the road, but I like the self-driving car option better. Personally, I trust a computer more than my own driving, but more importantly, I trust it more than the driving of someone drunk or busy texting. But I'm generally of the opinion that technology is more about giving us what we want than what is necessarily best for us. That's important in this context because a lot of search and rescue happens because someone was being rather reckless and telling someone they ought not climb a mountain with minimal safety gear or take a submersible down to look at a deep ocean trench is often not going to stop them from doing it. Humanity's curiosity and courage are two of our most admirable traits in my opinion, but stupidity and foolhardiness often masquerade as them and can be difficult to tell apart even for a wise man, who are darn rare and usually acquired that wisdom by sticking their nose in a bear trap and lucking out a few times. I'm usually considered a pretty cautious individual, and I know in my own case, and in the case of most other cautious folks I know, that we acquired that trait after sticking pennies in a wall plug a few times. Most of us have done something that would nominate us for a Darwin Award, and that's why we rush out to save folks even when they've brought it on themselves. That will be a lot more challenging as we move away from Earth, a very dangerous place but still the safest one in the Universe for people. How do you rush out and rescue some asteroid miners a million kilometers or more from the nearest help where they might have all asphyxiated before their emergency signal even reaches you? How do you run off to help some colony on a planet orbiting an alien sun a century of travel away? A lot like hunting for survivors of a shipwreck a century ago, you're relying on them staying alive for a long while on their wits and improvised solutions, but while we tend to write off cases like that as impossible to help, I think you'd still try, just manage your expectations, and plan with reason in mind. A little imagination helps too. I had a bet going on before I wrote this episode if I could come up with a legitimate reason to use an atomic weapon, death ray, or relativistic kill missile for search and rescue, and we did come up with all of the above. Setting off nukes to save people might seem a bit crazy and over the top, although I'm pretty sure SFIA regulars have a rather high threshold for that after enough episodes, but there's actually a ton of occasions where it does make sense. Tsunami, hurricanes, or earthquakes can potentially be dealt with by precision application of huge amounts of energy as can asteroids on a collision course with Earth. 
So too, firing off nukes in a diamond around some ship or escape pod, wandering through debris, can potentially vaporize that debris without hurting the vessel. But on the search end of things, often passive detection of looking around isn't enough and you need active detection, the difference between a flashlight and radar versus a low-light camera for instance. At the scales involved in space, blowing a nuke off in an area is a very good way to get a large flash to illuminate your search in whatever spectrum you are looking in, and you can pack substances around the warhead that will absorb the radiation and re-emit it in a particular detectable frequencies. Good way to make an impromptu lighthouse or serve as the deep space equivalent of a flare gun. We also have ship designs that use atomic bombs as their propellant see the Nuclear Option or Spaceship Proportion Compendium for details, and a good way to rescue a ship that's plowing through space at high speeds is to basically send them a warhead with a pusher plate attached to it, and a relativistic kill missile carrying one as its payload could be fired out after even interstellar ships moving at a high fraction of light who had their fuel tanks rupture light years from home. Needless to say, a laser built to serve as an anti-asteroid vaporizer or a death ray for leveling cities also makes a very handy deep space flashlight or radar for hunting after lost ships. Very powerful lasers are also handy for cutting and vaporizing your way through rubble to get to someone too. The key on all these things, especially the high-powered or ultra-fast ones, is precision of course, since a miscalculation could end up burying, burning, or crushing the person you're trying to rescue. Another key thing is that with good automation, you can use a quantity over quality approach. By flooding an area with search drones, or having them stationed at high density so some medical rescue robot is attached to every telephone pole. There are of course far more options for things to go wrong in space than we could cover today, and we'll explore options like what to do to handle a dome on Mars cracking open or someone blowing a giant hole in the side of a space habitat in future episodes on catastrophe-proofing civilizations and high-tech doomsday preppers, and we'll look at some more of the far future disaster options and how we can avoid them and react to them if they do happen. Daring survival stories are pretty common in all genres of fiction, and doubtless long predates even ancient tales like Homer's Odyssey, and certainly are popular in science fiction, with many great classics, but great stories about the folks looking to find and rescue folks are a lot less common outside of detective mystery novels where the person being sought fell afoul of a criminal rather than a natural disaster or ill luck. One of the things I especially like about the novel The Martian by Andy Weir and its film adaptation is it not only gave us a pretty realistic story of a man surviving against the odds, but the folks back home at Mission Control working against the odds to find and rescue him and folks risking and sacrificing a lot to try it. No crazy villain or aliens or hand waves or contrivances, just realism and determination, so it's an easy pick for our book of the month. If you've seen the film, the book is even better, and the narrator of the audiobook does an excellent job with the performance too. A good narrator can make a good book even better, and it's a great book to begin with. You can get a free copy of The Motion at audible.com slash Isaac or text Isaac to 500-500. Audible offers a 30-day free trial, but each month you're a member, 
you now get a free audiobook and two Audible Originals, and those credits roll over to the next month or year and stay yours along with any books you got even if you later discontinue your membership. And with their convenient app, you can listen on any of your devices and seamlessly pick up where you left off, whether you're listening at home, commuting, running errands, or off jogging or at the gym. Audible makes it cheap and easy to access a vast collection of amazing stories on any device. Of course one day such a device might be even easier to access as we develop seamless and intuitive mind-machine interfaces, and as mentioned we'll be looking at those next week, both the advantages and challenges ahead of us for developing and safely using such technology. A point we'll make next week is that such technologies are almost inevitable for us at this point, it's just a matter of when and which methods we can most easily develop and feel comfortable using, but advances in technology might not be inevitable even when possible, and in two weeks we'll be going back to our Fermi Paradox Great Filter series to examine the idea that advanced civilizations in our universe might be rare not just because the planetary conditions and evolutionary pathway to intelligence might be rare, but because many civilizations might not pursue technology. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to support the channel you can visit our website to donate, or just share the video with others. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a safe week!